we're in uh, Exodus, which was fitting, Tim, that you found that other word, the, his Exodus, the Exodus of Jesus. So we're in Exodus. I'm talking about Joseph and the Pharaohs. And so last Sunday, after I had finished my message, I got back to my, my notes, and someone had like completely marked them up. And so I thought, well, okay, at least I've already used them. And so then this week, I was working on my notes and had them sitting there pretty much all the way done. And then yesterday, my niece Evangeline was there. And when I got back to my sermon notes, she had literally finished them. From here on down are all her notes very neatly written in. So if you don't understand something today, <laughs> it's from the second half of the page. <laughs> now, I... I was, last week I, I was ranging around too wide. I didn't like how far afield it got. Um, and so you, you'd think that if I didn't like it, I could at least control it, right? You have little control. <laughs> but if I'm dealing with it, I should be able to do something, right? But I was, it, I, don't, I don't always feel like, um, wait, well, here's what happens. I put down skeleton notes and I put down the little things that I think are important as points. And if I can just stick to all of those points, that's awesome. But I get to a point and I'm thinking, there's a story about this. There's an account in the Bible or some illustration or something, and I want to share that. And so if I do that for every single one that comes along, it's a long ride. And, I don't, and so I, I've been, uh, I used to think if I do short notes, I'll get done faster. And now I'm not so sure anymore. It just, it's, it's, but I'm trying today to be more concise and precise with where we are. Stacy laughs at me because that was a, Poor start to being more concise. I already was far afield. <laughs> okay. I should have just come up here and said, Exodus, turn to Exodus chapter 1. Which, let's do that. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 1. So Exodus chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to read down just to the first, uh, the first eight verses is what I'm going to be reading. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben. And by the way, some Sundays I say Simeon and some Sundays I say Simon. So I'm just going to let you know that happens. Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all those who, are, who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. All right, so in the, in the timeline of things, uh, Joseph is in his, so, so just, this is one of those far afield things. Did you know Joseph is the 23rd generation from Adam? It's just an interesting note. There's 23 generations from Adam till Joseph. He's the 23rd jo generation. So we have Joseph here. He lived 110 years, and he was um, in his 30-something when the when he was when the whole uh, when his sons were being born during the famines and stuff. I have the exact timeline on my laptop on my computer. I didn't actually write them down here. So we're now talking when he's 110 year, years old and he dies, they've been in uh, Egypt for, you know, 70, 75 plus years-ish. And so for a king to come up that doesn't know Joseph means it's, it's very possible that in that time frame, Joseph might have served more than one pharaoh that he would have been there. And so now comes a pharaoh who doesn't know 
that doesn't know him. And it is either it's, some suggest that it's just someone who is, is, it's spent enough time has elapsed so that maybe we're now the second or third pharaoh down or something. Some suggest that it was actually maybe a hostile takeover of the government where the Egyptians and one of their other groups has taken the throne. Um, and both of them are possible. Um, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later when we talk more about the pharaohs and what's happening and how it fits into the historical archaeological timeline. But for right now, the point is that there's a king that shows up, there's a pharaoh that shows up who doesn't know Joseph. And I found it fascinating just in reading through Exodus that in uh, chapter 2, verse 23, there is this moment where after Moses has been, um, he's, he's already grown up, he survived and has been adopted, and then actually ends up killing someone, and then he flees to Midian. He's in Midian for a while, and eventually in verse two, uh, chapter Exodus two, chapter twenty-three, ugh, Exodus chapter two, verse twenty-three, it says, "Now it happened, in the process of time, that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage." So now, this the king of Egypt dying while Moses is in Midian, is important because it's basically a pharaoh that doesn't know Moses. So he doesn't say it in that way because it's not the same, it's the opposite of, of the other. So in, with Joseph, the, the pharaoh comes along and he, is, he doesn't remember Joseph and that's a bad thing. But with Moses, Moses made a problem with the pharaoh because he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He had killed someone. He was wanted. He was a vagabond. And so the Pharaoh dies. And so now Moses should be able to come back into Egypt, right? Because it's a new Pharaoh. It's a new king. And so I was thinking about these two men, Joseph and Moses, and the fact that they came. Uh, both of them lived and were actually loved by God, used by God. But the way they interacted with the, the fact that we have a verse that says in the a Pharaoh rose up who didn't know Joseph, and then here it says, and, and then Moses, the Pharaoh died, and so then it goes to God looking down and, and basically calling Moses at the burning bush. So I wanted to take a moment and just to compare these two uh, things in the lives of Joseph and Moses and their Pharaohs. So we start with Moses, and I'm sorry, we start with Joseph. I want to go back and start with Joseph. So we start with Joseph, and I'll be looking specifically at some verses over in Genesis 39, but we start with him in Genesis 37, where he is Rachel's son. Jacob loves him. Jacob makes a coat for him. Jacob, uh, Joseph has dreams. In his dreams, he sees um, all of the, the, the typology as we look at it. It looks like his brothers and his parents are bowing down to him. It seems that he is somehow being exalted to a place of leadership. Joseph is looking at these. He is not ignoring them. It's serious enough. The way the dream comes is serious enough that he's telling other people about it. It doesn't seem like it's just the rambling dream, because most of us have done this, where we wake up in the morning like, you wouldn't believe what I dreamed last night. And then we start going, and, you know, like, and, and then, then, then suddenly you know, you're talking about a person, and then they turn into an alligator, and then you know, like it, just, it just ranges, and you're like, okay, is there any significance in this dream? Most of the time, we don't think there's significance in it. It's just funny because we remember it, so we share it. 
And so there's a point in time when children hit that stage where they're able to remember dreams and they start telling us the dream stories and they can go on and on and on forever because what takes, you know, five seconds to dream can take like 25 minutes to tell. And so the, the mom who has listened to so many dream stories, I mean, that's a saint right there. You know, you hear all these, because it's not even real. Like it's, it's it, it means nothing and it's not real, but it, it, it happened. And so the child is sharing. And so occasionally in our lives, we have a dream that actually seems to us that it means something. And that many times, in my, in my instance, I've had several dreams where I felt that this was God speaking to me and encouraging me in some way. And the fruit that it bore in my life seemed to point that way, that it was the Spirit of God at work. And so this seems to be the case with Joseph, is that he has this dream that seems really significant, significant enough that in the way he tells it, the brothers all react very negatively. The father says, huh, are you really going to do that? You know, is this really going to happen? But it says that he kept it in his heart. And so he was thinking about it. So Jacob is watching and he's wondering. He's not sure what this means. And so the, the, in our, uh, when we went through the life of Joseph a year and a half, two, maybe it's been three or four years ago now. I don't remember. Probably 2016, really. Um, <laughs> when we went through the life of Joseph, we were looking at something here is happening because there is, there is the Joseph that is, is here He's telling his dreams, he's talking about it, and it seems that the, that the way he talks about God's work in his life is causing others to react to him. And so this is a spot that I think most of us can actually uh, feel some comradeship with Joseph because there's many times in our life where we are pretty sure God is working in our lives, but the way that we tell it or the way that we try to share it, the people around us do not appreciate it. And it's the, the thing, the, it reminds me of back when, and when COVID was first coming, we were having some discussions and I was talking about how let, do not let my faith produce fear in someone else. I want the sort of faith that produces faith in the others around me. And so that's a, that was a hard question. What does that even look like? Because sometimes when someone is sold under fear, no matter what you say or do, they're going to hear and be afraid. And, I, and, and we don't want that. And so when I talk about Jesus, I don't want people to respond to me in a negative way. I want them to actually be able to hear what I'm saying and respond to God. So here's Joseph. He tells this dream. Pretty sure this is from God, but the brothers are not responding to God at this point. Not even close. They're reacting to Joseph. And so we can blame, jo we can blame the brothers for all of it, but I think we can also put some of that blame with Joseph and say, what's going on with Joseph? Why at this point when he speaks, are they not able to hear what he has to say? Because there is a reality that the way we share something, even if it's true, could potentially push people farther away from God. And so we don't want that. So with Joseph, you know, we see him, he goes out to find his brothers. He shows up with his brothers. They see him both as a telltale. They see him as, you know, the father's, their father's favorite son, the pet, and whatever, all this. And so, so there's, a, there's a reality that with, with Joseph, when the brothers come and throw him in a pit, it's like Reuben wants to defend him purely because Reuben is the firstborn and he cares about Jacob. Reuben doesn't seem to be doing it for the love of Joseph at all. It's only he's thinking, I'm going to have to talk to Jacob. I'm going to have to talk to my dad about this. 
and I don't want to. And so even there, it seems that his response or his interaction with Joseph is not one of love and compassion for Joseph. So out of all the brothers, you would think surely there would be someone that Joseph could have befriended and made a friend of. But we don't find that. We, it seems that all of them are just fine with let it, letting him get out of their life. Now, it bothers their conscience because they know that they have sinned against God. And so even later when they show up in Egypt and, and, and there this strange man in Egypt is being hard on them, where do they ascribe it to? Immediately they say, this is happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. That's, that's where they go immediately with it. They're like, ah, oh, we're having this hardship. This guy is being hard on us because of how we uh, acted to Joseph. So that's fascinating to me that they, they have that much, they have enough conscience for that, but they don't seem to have any love for Joseph. Like you don't see them even in Egypt saying, oh, we love you, brother. In fact, as soon as Jacob's dead, they're very concerned that jo- Joseph is going to get back after them. So we have this problem with, uh, with a Joseph who doesn't seem to, to have created any relationship with any of his brothers, He's been special, and he's enjoyed that. He has a relationship with his dad, but so do they. But there is no relationship here. And so I think this is important for us to note, because what happens next is we get down to Egypt. He's sold into slavery. He goes, he, he's carried in chains down into Egypt. He shows up in Egypt. And now we go to Genesis chapter 39. And in Genesis 39, there are a few verses that I want to point out. Uh, Genesis 39, we'll read the first three verses, or first four verses probably. It says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house with his master, the Egyptian. So this is the first time this phrase has shown up in Scripture. The Lord was with Joseph. So we have it here. Then verse 3, it says, His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. And then in verse 4, it says, So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority. So now we have him in Potiphar's house and the Lord is with him. So the point is, we see Jacob's favor on Joseph. We see the brothers hating Joseph. But now we see a new relationship here. We see God's favor on Joseph and that the Lord is with him. This is different. This seems to be something new. And so as, as he's coming through the house of, in, in Potiphar's house, we see him actually being righteous and standing for truth. Now, we don't see him sinning back in the old days. In fact, that is part of why the brothers don't like him is because he seems to always do the right things and not participate with them in the wrong things. So there is, a, there is an issue where somehow the righteousness of Joseph does not equate to the friendliness or the relationship building of Joseph. And I think this is important for us to think about. I I don't have all the answers. I don't have an actual full, Scripture doesn't give us and say, this is the character of Joseph, and this is how he was um, in relationships before. It just gives us the information that we have. But we come here, and we see now that God is with him. So in my, in in me examining this, and, and and many others before me who have read through this, there seems to be something that happened to Joseph when he was thrown in that pit. When he, as his brother said, he entreated us um, with tears. When he entreated us, we hardened our heart to him. So when he is being rejected by all of his brothers, and suddenly it's all of it's bad, and there's no brother that's standing up for him, and, and, and even Reuben, who was 
going to kind of save him was saving it for the father, not for the son. And so something happens to Joseph when he's completely rejected by his family and he's being taken down by the Ishmaelites down into Egypt. Somewhere along that journey, I believe there was a, a different, deeper connection between Joseph and his God, where not, now it's not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it becomes the God of Joseph. So Joseph seems to have gone through a deepening time of his relationship. It was tragic. It was horrible. And yet he shows up in Egypt and now God is with him. If you look down after everything happens in Potiphar's house where Potiphar's wife tries to get him to sin, he says, no, he runs from there. He actually ends up in prison. And the next thing you know, he's down in prison. And in Genesis 39, now we're in verse 21, it says, the Lord... Well, verse 20, if you back up there, verse 20 says, Then Joseph's master, so this is in the prison, uh, Joseph's master, Potiphar, took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and there, and he was there in the prison. Verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. And so we have this prospering that's happening now also in the prison. So again, he is being rejected. Again, he's being cast down, but he is now prospering in the prison. So we had First, his dreams is special treatment. Then his rejection is sold into slavery. Something happens. He seems to have humbled himself before God. He has favor with Potiphar. God is with him. He has favor with the prison guard. God is with him. And then if we go to Genesis chapter 41, this is now after he uh, interpreted for the captain of the guard, uh, not the captain, the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt. After he did interpret their dreams and they came to be true, two years later, Pharaoh has the dreams. And when Pharaoh comes and calls, or when Pharaoh calls Joseph out and he brings him there, there's something interesting to note in, in both the responses uh, to the butler and the baker and to Pharaoh when they asked him about the dreams. He said, doesn't that belong to God? That, that belongs to God. That's God's. So immediately he always is reflecting or deflecting it back to the Lord saying, God is my source. This is where it belongs. Then we come to Genesis 41 and it's in verse... 37 through 44. So Genesis 41, 37. The advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. So Joseph has just given the counsel. He interpreted the dream. He says, the two dreams you had, Pharaoh, they're one dream. They mean the same thing. The Lord gave them to you twice because it's urgent. And so there's the seven years that are very plenteous, the seven years that are of great famine. And the, the great famine is going to be so big that it's going to use up all the surplus of the, of the seven years. And so he explains that. That is taken care of. And then Joseph goes on beyond what he would have to do. But he literally looks at Pharaoh and says, if I was you, I'd get ready. Because this is from God. It's serious. And you need to do something. So this is how I would do it. If I was you in your place, I would appoint someone to collect 20% of all the grain and everything that's raised over the next seven years, and I would store that in preparation for the seven years that are bad. What's amazing to me is that 20% of the produce during the seven plentiful years is enough to take care of not just Egypt, but people coming from afar to buy grain. So if you think that was really, really plentiful, everybody 
You know, if, if I would have been at the time, you know, you, you have your 20%, well, some of them, different people probably saved different amounts and they lasted out longer than others. But in the end, all of Egypt had basically had to sell themselves back to Pharaoh and say, we're yours, we're going to farm for you, we're all yours because of this. And so here we have Pharaoh recognizing in Joseph that God is with him. And it says here, verse 38, Genesis 41, 38, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? And so then Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. So what's fascinating to me is that now Joseph has all this power. God, I mean, Pharaoh recognizes that God's spirit is in him and gives him all of this authority and it doesn't seem to corrupt Joseph. He does all this work. He takes care of everyone through the seven plentiful years he collects, through the seven hard years he gives out the grain. He gets married during that time in the seven plentiful years. He has two sons during that time. And by the time his brothers come back down and to him, the Pharaoh is willing to receive the entire clan and connection of Joseph because of the actions of Joseph and because God is with him. And this is important because when we go look at what's happening with Moses, at the time when the Pharaoh knows who Moses is, Moses goes down and he does a few things where he's trying to make a, something better for his people, but instead of it making it better, it made it worse. So the actions of Joseph not only saved himself, but all of his family, all of his people, all of his clan. And the actions of Moses made it worse. Now, eventually, so if you look at Moses' life, you know, here he comes, he's been given a special place of favor. And if you think of Joseph, special place of favor, coat of many colors. Well, here comes Moses. He's in the very house of Pharaoh as Pharaoh's daughter, son. And so here he is. He has this special place of favor. He looks at his people. He says, I want to help you guys. God put me in this place so I would be able to help. He goes out there. He kills somebody. He kills an Egyptian. And next thing you know, he's running and hiding for his life. And it's worse for the people at home because of him than it was before. And so there's a difference in how this response happens. Now we see Moses then spending time down in the, in the wilderness. And eventually when, when the burning bush shows up and God shows up in Moses' life, there's something changed in Moses to the fact that he says, what, you want to send me back there? I, I'm, not, I'm not able to do this. So we see that there was eventually a humbling. And after the humbling, then we see all kinds of evidence that God is with Moses. In fact, God says, you want to show them that I'm with you? Do this, do this, do this, do these things. And so we see this and so as, as I was considering these two lives and these two relationships with Pharaoh, I was stopping and asking the question. You know, there's, there's a lot of turmoil in government, um, not just now. It's, uh, I've been reading history again. It, it keeps happening. And whenever I do, I'm just, I'm just, it is so phenomenal to me how man on earth cannot live peaceably with each other. There's just wars and more wars and then there's threats of wars, and there's, there's just constantly. Like, and I shared on my coffee talk this week how one of the things that just stuck out to me was how back in 1714, if I have the right date, it's 1714 or 17, somewhere in the teens, the British Parliament actually put together 
an act that said, if 12 or more people get together and we don't like it, we can use force to separate you out and stop what you're doing. If 12 or more people gather for any reason that we don't approve of, and they didn't specify what the approving or not approving is. They, they said what powers they could have. And so by 18, and I'm forgetting the date now, but the, uh, in the 18, early 1800s, there were a lot of people going, we don't like what's happening. And so they had 60,000 people show up. That's more than 12. And so, so they came with the riot act, literally, that's what they call it. They came with their riot act and read it. So have you ever heard the term, read the riot act? Well, so these people, the parliament sent down their whatever, they read the riot act and said, because of this, we have the authority to stop what you're doing and we're going to do it. So they took the cavalry, took out their sabers and charged the crowd of 60,000 people, killed 15, hurt, wounded like two to 400 people and arrested the guy that was going to be speaking at that event. And so this is, you know, this is peaceful, honorable Britain, you know, in the, the time of right after King, it's King George IV, or I think at that time. And so I'm just reading that going, that's nuts. But they absolutely were like, we will not have any protests and we will, you will let us do what we want to do. And it sounds so familiar. Like there's so much government that is always wanting that position of saying, we get to say what happens and no one else gets to do anything else. And so the fact that, you know, and then I, you know, you keep reading in history and not only there, but all around the place, you keep seeing that. And so there's always a need and, a ch and there's always a potential that in any age that you live in, your people will be endangered by the king. And so in this example, we have Pharaoh who we see in, in, in different times and places, he can be very, the, the, the king of Egypt can be very oppressive. But we have two men who know the Pharaoh. We have Joseph and we have Moses. And so this was my thought process as I was thinking about it, is there is a, there is a, there is a potential that one of us at one point is going to know the Pharaoh, is going to know the king. When we know the king, will our relationship with the king make things better for our people or worse for our people? Will the king look at us and say, the spirit of God is in you. Who better to lead than you? Or will, he, will the king send his mercenaries out to try to arrest us and kill us? What is going to happen and secondarily, how much of that is up to us? Like how, you know, really, truly. And so as I was thinking about that, I think about that moment where Pharaoh looks at him and says, can we find such a one as this in whom, a man in whom is the spirit of God? How much better is it for the king, the Pharaoh of our time, when he looks at us to say, if he's going to reject us, how much better is it for him to look at us and say, you have the spirit of God in you, get out, than it is to say, what are you doing, killing my people? No. And so I just was thinking about that. And I don't have the final solution, but I have a pretty solid understanding that you and I don't always know who is put into positions of power and not, and historically speaking, the person in the position of power often has less influence over what happens to the people than the people who are around him one tier away. 
So many times the person in a position of power feels as if their hands are tied because they have all the people yelling at them from all directions saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. And it can become very, very difficult. So you can have someone in a position of power and authority who could do whatever he wants and he'll continually make the wrong decisions because he's just so torn with what he ought to do. But if he has a quiet voice, someone that he trusts next to him who says, you know, you have options. You can do something different this time. He says, really? I can? Well, yes, you can. That quiet voice, the voice around the position of power, and if you don't believe me, look at our current highest office of the land. When you look at our president right now, do you see a man who is making strong decisions and leadership himself? No. He is bumbling through the office, getting all kinds of different input and saying, oh, is that what we're doing today? Okay, I guess that's what we're doing. What am I supposed to say? Where am I supposed to say it? That's how he's living. He's, we don't have a fearless leader who's able to lead who's coming up with his own ideas, but there are a lot of people who are speaking into his ears and they're influencing what happens in America and we didn't even elect them. Well, that's what happens here with someone like Joseph. He's not elected. I mean, he's in prison. And then God says, look what I'm going to do. I'm going to put one of my men from prison. He's in the lowest places, the lowest places. And I'm going to put him into a place of influence so that when Jacob and his clan needs a place to go to escape the famine. The Pharaoh says, come and use the best of our land. Live here. We will take care of you. It's a big deal. This favor with the Pharaoh is amazing because God uses this Pharaoh, this Pharaoh to actually save his people and to let them grow and multiply until they're ready to leave. Well, then we have a Pharaoh who has to be dealt with because he doesn't want to let them leave. And so then finally Moses is ready and he shows up and God is with him. And it's amazing what happens then. But imagine if Moses had come back from the wilderness in the same way that he went to the wilderness. With the same striving in his own strength, trying to do what he had. Imagine that for a minute. Because I think it could have gone very, very wrong but it didn't go all the way wrong because by that time Moses was listening to God and Pharaoh, that Pharaoh hated God and therefore he hated Moses. He kind of envied Moses because Moses had so much power and influence with God. So that is possible that you'll find yourself in that position of Moses. But I'm just going to suggest that in our economy and what's happening in the world today, there will probably be more of us who find ourselves in some position similar to Joseph than there will be those of us who will find ourselves in a position like Moses. But either way, we want to make sure that we're hearing the voice of God. And I don't want to have to be thrown into a pit and sold into slavery before I start hearing the voice of God. I don't want to have to spend 40 years taking care of sheep in the wilderness before I start listening to the voice of God. I want to choose now to listen to the voice of God. I don't know when the opportunity arises. I don't know where the opportunity will be. I don't know which Pharaoh it is. I don't know if it's a local or a regional or a, I don't know who I will be in contact with. We don't know that. I mean, when Joseph is in prison and you asked him, say, you know, how much influence do you have on Pharaoh? He says, absolutely none. But in one day, 
it changed. And he had a lot of influence. So much influence that it, it was changing the entire policy of the country that before the policy of the country could be changed, Joseph had to be forgotten. So when someone shows up on the national stage that doesn't remember Joseph, now they can change the policy. But as long as Joseph is remembered, the policy stays the same. So this is influential and powerful. And so while we don't often talk about this, I think it's necessary to say, do you aspire to have the ear of the kingmakers and the actual kings and authorities? Like, is this something that you would pray for? Like, if you found yourself there, would you be able to speak the word of the Lord to that person? Or would you find yourself so upset? Because, I mean, think about who Pharaoh is. There's plenty of wickedness in Pharaoh, in every, every Pharaoh, actually, when you look at the gods that they served and the places they went and the things that they did, they're not godly men. We don't look at history and say, remember that righteous man, King Tut? Like, we don't do that. We, we don't look at them as righteous. We know, who, we, we know certain things about them. And so to, be, to find yourself in a position to influence this, and, you know, um, a note on someone like William Wilberforce, who was very much working toward the abolition of slavery and uh, several other measures that needed to be taken care of in England that were just real issues that a Christian people should not have been embracing. But at that point, England was politically Christian, but not Christian as in indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There were some who were, but for the most part, they were politically Christian, not actually Christian uh, in knowing the Lord. And so we find in William Wilberforce, as he comes to know the Lord, he would have every right and reason to reject everyone who is not walking with the Lord fully as he is, but he doesn't. In fact, when we see, the, uh, I think it's Pitt, the, the second Pitt, uh, William Pitt, when he is prime minister, he doesn't seem to truly do everything that William asks him to do, but William stays loyal to him and works with him, and eventually it pays off with the things they worked with Pitt and then with later. And so I, I kept, I keep looking at these men of influence and these men who are in various places. Cause you see, you see um, later, you see Daniel, you see Nehemiah, you see a lot of times in the Bible, so many, uh, you know, we have our Kings that we talk about in uh, the Kings of Israel. And most of them, what we read is a list of their accomplishments and a list of their failures for every single one. Like there is no King that says, and he was 100% righteous and did not sin at all. It usually says, you know, you have David, and you're like, oh, wow, look at everything he did. Oh, but he also did this and that. You have Solomon, and you're like, wait a minute. So he was the wisest man. He did all of these things, and yet he had all of these wives, and he didn't. Like, when you read how David handed over the kingdom to Solomon, it sounds like wisdom, and it sounds amazing. But when you read how Solomon handed over to his son, he didn't. He just kind of died, and then they had to take over, and and... David said, I want Solomon to be my, my son, to be the king. While he was still alive, they, they actually crowned him king. He passed on the baton and actually did a really good job of that. And Solomon didn't. In fact, Solomon writes in the uh, book of Ecclesiastes how much he hates the fact that all the work you have to do and everything you amass for yourself is just going to go off to someone who didn't work for it. Well, train that guy. 
prepare your error if you don't like what they're going to do with it. So there needs to be, so this is one of those times when I'm going far afield from where I want it to go, okay? <clears throat> but so but circling back to this moment of, of the fact that we don't actually know if we're going to have the ear or the influence into someone's life. Because to me, it seems just as possible for one of us to find ourselves in, in Denver talking to Governor Polis about something, uh, or even in Washington, D.C., talking to President Biden, as it was for Joseph when he was in prison to suddenly be speaking to the Pharaoh. That was a great impossibility, and God just did it. So I think it's good for us to have our hearts in preparation to be prepared to give an answer that is good for our people and brings glory and honor to God, but also respects the office and the position of our government. Because what Joseph did not only saved his people, but it also strengthened the, the, the Pharaoh's control over Egypt. And so Pharaoh was able to take care of Jacob and his clan, but at the same time, Pharaoh was being taken care of. And this is, this is a different way of thinking. Because honestly, for myself, if I'm looking at the political parties and different uh, disagreements and agreements I have, I'm thinking, well, if I could just get up there, I would like to sabotage a thing or two. Well, it is possible that at some point in your life, you might be in a position where you need to sabotage something. But what if you're put into a place where your influence, the Spirit of God in you, has the potential to actually bless the entire the entirety of your people, where God will be strengthening the church because of what you are speaking. And in that moment, when you're given this opportunity to speak wisdom and to speak the spirit of God, and in that moment, you're like, forget that, I'm gonna sabotage this. Long-term, that's a bad policy. You might die for it, who knows? So this is a different way of thinking about government than we usually think, because we don't usually think of the fact that we're going to end up there talking and helping make decisions. Like if you could get over there um, and suddenly have the ear of Putin, what would you tell him? I mean, are you in the whole shoot him down? Or what are you going to say? Like what's going to happen if you're suddenly there? That's a pretty far stretch because we're not even in that country, right? So fair, Joseph was at least in Egypt already. <laughs> and so, so, there, so it's a far stretch to think we'll be in some, but it's not a completely foreign, and I think as believers, we need to always be aware of this, is that there may come a time or a moment when we are in the company of what we would call strangers and enemies, and we're not sure what's happening, but suddenly they look at us and say, you've got the spirit of God, what should we do? And in that moment, you know, Nehemiah, when the king asked him a question, he says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I think that would be where we would start. We'd pray to the God of heaven and say, Lord, what do you want me to say? But it would help if our heart had already been softened toward the Lord and we had already been praying for those and we'd already understood that God can use anyone. And if we didn't have the fear of man, but we only had the fear of God, that would be very helpful. And so in preparation to find ourselves as Joseph in the presence of Pharaoh, I wanted to close out today with looking uh, to simply ask the question, like, do I want God to be with me on that level where the, where the, 
the ungodly kings of the land can look at me and say, the spirit of God is in you. Where else could we find a person like this? So if I want God to be with me, because I do want God to be with me, what can I do? And this is where I'm going to read two passages. Um, we're going to start over in James chapter 4 and read that one, then we'll go to 1 Peter. So James chapter 4. James 4, um, starting in verse 7. Actually, can we start in verse 6? So it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. What stands out to me in this section of scriptures, James is writing to us and he's giving us very clear actions. And he starts out by saying, God gives more grace. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. So there is a submission that is necessary. I need to be submitting myself to the Lord. I need to be humbling myself before the Lord in order to receive from him the the grace that he has. Then he says, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, I know that in our day and age, sometimes when we talk about these things like cleansing our hands, we think in terms of, oh, I cannot save myself. Um, you know, only Jesus can save me. And so when I start talking about humbling yourself and I talk about all the work that we are to do, we can get to the point where we, where we just kind of quietly reject that and say, well, I, you know, God has done everything for me. I don't have to struggle or strive. But this is not what that's talking about. This is talking about me as a believer. I am a child of the king. I have come to him. He has drawn me to himself. He has saved my soul because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. He has done all of that. And now he has called me his own and he's wanting to do something with me. He wants to work through me. He wants to actually use me in the world. But he says, there's a few things that you need to be t taken care of. Because I don't know how it was for you, when I came to Jesus and surrendered my life to him and was saved and born again and headed to heaven, that was awesome and glorious, but I suddenly became more aware of the fact that the things I was doing that displeased the Lord. Because there were things I was doing beforehand that didn't really bother me, but when I came to Christ, when I had the Spirit of God in me, suddenly my conscience was awakened and I said, oh, I shouldn't be doing that anymore. Well, at that point, I could say, okay, Lord, save me if you want to. You know, take this away from me. But that's not what James is saying. He says, you do it. Cleanse your hands. So if your hands are getting filthy because of what you're doing, stop it. You change what you're doing. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's telling us that there's something, there's work for us to be done. And as we do this work, we discover that we can draw nearer to the Lord and we can experience more and more of him. And hopefully in that moment when we stand before Pharaoh suddenly, Pharaoh can look at us and instead of seeing the filth of us, he actually sees the spirit of the living God. Let's go over to 1 Peter. It's uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. 
And so there's a moment here where in 1 Peter 5 where he's talking to the shepherds of the flock. Then in verse 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, it says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And so we say, Oh, yes, he's talking to younger people. That's good. But then he says, excuse me, then he says, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He quotes the same verse. And then he says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this is a blessing that he's putting in here, but with the blessing he's giving an assignment. And so as, as I was this week, as I was going about my daily life, this was something I was thinking about, was what is this that God has given us? This opportunity, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. So there's something about this that God says, I want to be known by you. I want you to know me, but I'm giving a certain amount of this into your hands that you need to respond. You need to act. You need to choose where you're going to be. And so this is, this is less of a salvation issue and is more of an issue of do I want to come limping into heaven with everything burned off my back and all the work of my hands destroyed or do I want to come in victoriously because I have been walking with the Lord leading up to that moment. This is what it really comes down to. Because to say, oh, God has taken care of it. I don't have to worry about this. And to just sit down and relax is preparing me not to come in with flying colors, but to prepare me to come in as if Jesus had barely been able to save me. And Jesus was able to save me fully. He gave me everything I needed. So even to the fact that he can tell me, Joseph, you resist the devil. He will flee from you. Why? Because the spirit of the living God is in me because I have been covered by the blood of Jesus, because my sins have been forgiven, because I am now adopted into the family of God. I am a child of the king. Because of that, I have an authority in the heavenly places to literally resist the devil and he has to flee from me. So God has given me so much, but he wants me to exercise it. And so if I never think about what God's will and desire is for me or my people or for the people, if I don't think about and meditate on what God is doing in the church, the day that I stand before Pharaoh and he looks at me and says, what do you think? I'm going to mutter and groan and mumble and be like, I don't know, you know, call someone who knows, you know, what, what, why are you asking me? I'm just sitting here waiting for Jesus to come. And I don't want to be in that position where I am literally not able to give an answer of the hope because I'm just hanging on, waiting for Jesus to come back, and I hate everybody in the world. I want to be in a position where I am loving God, drawing near to him, and I'm looking at the things he loves. I'm being grieved by the things that grieve him. I'm being delighted by the things that delight him, and I'm actually interacting with God so that on the day when I look at Pharaoh, I'm not seeing Pharaoh for the first time but I've been praying for him and seeking, thinking about this. I don't know what happened with Joseph in prison. I don't, you know, he already told, um, he'd already, when he interpreted the dreams and he had told the butler, he said, tell Pharaoh about me because I'm down here against, I shouldn't even be here. He literally says, tell Pharaoh. So he's thinking about Pharaoh in some way. 
So I don't know exactly how that works or if you or I will ever be the one that stands in that place of influence, but it's possible. I mean, the odds that Joseph landed where he did were pretty impossible odds. I mean, first of all, he's a little boy up in, in Canaan, and then he shows up in Egypt, then he's in prison, and then, where is he? He's in the palace, and he's talking to Pharaoh, and God uses him. So for us, let us all be submissive to one another, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. This is an important part. There are times when you and I will be attacked by the enemy or attacked by the world and we'll feel like, man, why am I being singled out for this? You know, with Joseph, when he's thrown into prison, I mean, Jacob has 12 sons. Only one of his sons ends up in prison. Why me? This was plenty of reason to kind of give up and stop, but he doesn't. He actually carries on. And so I want us to encourage us that there are attacks that happen. And there's many a time when you will be under an attack and you won't realize it until sometime later. Either someone prays with you or you pray, but we need to be aware that when I wake up in the morning and I'm feeling the oppression of the enemy, that's my responsibility to fight back, to resist in the name of Jesus. When I wake up in the morning and I'm just feeling discouraged and overwhelmed, it's my job to cast all my care upon him because he cares for me. So there is something that has been given to me. I am not a helpless victim in this. I can actually fight back. He has given me weapons and tools I can fight back. So let's do that. And whether or not we land up with Pharaoh, I don't know. But I want us to be aware of the possibility that it could happen and to be seeking the Lord fervently so that we can know the Lord and hear his voice. So on that day, we're not left without something to say. Let's pray. Father, you took Joseph from his homeland, from his people. You put him in a lonely place and yet you were with him and you showed him favor. You put, he went into prison because of Potiphar's wife lying about him and you, put, you took him out of prison and you put him in Pharaoh's court. And you gave him influence, you gave him power, you gave him the ability to actually be an instrument that changed the course of that nation and changed the course of the nation of Israel. So Father, thank you for that example, but I pray for us that as we look at these events that happened in Egypt with the Exodus, that we don't think that this is something so far away that we can't apply it to ourselves, but we see the possibility, Lord, you may want to use us for our people, for our time. So Lord, we want to draw near to you. We want to know you. We want to hear your voice. We want to walk in obedience to you. We want you to be glorified. We want your kingdom to be established in our hearts, Lord, that your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for your love to us, and thank you for giving us these weapons. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.